You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, all the way back in April, when we started this series through the book of Ezekiel, you may remember that we talked about Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God. He talks about the glory of these four living creatures and on their shoulders rest this incredible throne chariot that God is coming on. And so much glory that Ezekiel can't even really explain what's actually going on. So he's, it's fire and it's lightning and it's sapphire and bronze and wings that sound like the sound of tumult and eyes that can see everything without ever having to turn their head. And all of that's just the glory of the, the creatures and of the throne. And none of that is reaching to the glory of God himself. And then when he looks up onto the throne and he sees God, all he could say is that there was brightness brightness all around. The glory of God had come all the way to Babylon to find his people and to speak to them. The very people who had rejected God time and time again now, God in all of his glory is pursuing after them. Why? Well, perhaps we could come up with many reasons why, but central to it must be this truth, and that is that God desires relationship with his people. The the, the truth of the matter is that humans were created for relationship with God. We were created out of the abundance of love in that perfect relationship that is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in so much love with one another, in such perfect relationship with one another that they created humanity just so they would have someone else to share that overflow of love with. And so they created us for relationship with them. And that's true from the very beginning. So if you consider the the creation narrative in Genesis 2. I know we often, we like to think about create the creation thing that happens in Genesis 1 and how many days and how many this, that, and the other, but let's talk about Genesis 2. If you look at creation in Genesis 2, here's what happens. God creates humanity and then everything else is created as a gift to humanity. So he creates humans and then he creates this garden with all of these beautiful plants and all of these trees that are gonna be abundant in the food that they provide. And he gives it all over to mankind and says, it's a gift to you. And then God looks out and he says, oh, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates every animal that is and he gives it as a gift to mankind. And then ultimately and eventually God creates another human so that that true and deep relationship like that relationship that exists within the Godhead might exist in humanity as well. All of it is a gift from a loving God who created us out of relationship and created us for relationship with himself. And then God would come 
and he would walk with them in the garden and he would spend time with them and share life with them in the cool of the evening, sharing of the beauty of this garden together. And even, even after Adam and Eve fall into sin and that relationship with God is broken, it's not done away with. Not entirely, right? Because God desires relationship with his people. And so on through the generations, what we see is God meeting with his people first over the altar. And so various times throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus, what we see is we see God meeting with his people over the altar of sacrifice, all sorts of them throughout these books. So Adam and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses over and over and over again, meeting with God at the the altar that they have constructed, an altar of sacrifice and prayer. And then eventually... God's going to give to his people a tabernacle, a place where he would regularly meet with them. And and once they're in the promised land, once they're established as a nation, as a kingdom, he's gonna give them the temple. Now a place where his glory might dwell permanently in their midst. The problem, of course, is not, is never that God has rejected his people but that his people have rejected him. And so when we come to the book of Ezekiel, what we find is that they're still using the temple, but they're not using it to worship him any longer. And they're still going to the altars, but now they're worshiping foreign gods instead of the true God. And it's because of their deep rebellion and their desecration of the temple that God has the temple destroyed. He says, if you're not going to use this to meet with me, then you're not going to have it anymore. And God sends them into exile, into the nations of the gods that they desire. He says, if you want those gods instead of me, then go be with those gods. But he doesn't abandon them because he loves them too much. And so we see at the very beginning of Ezekiel, his presence appearing even in Babylon. And if we keep going in the story of scripture, what we would find is that God brings his people back from exile. But even more than that, we would find a God who is so desirous of relationship with his people that he himself would take on flesh and dwell among us. God became man so that he might bring us back to God. But even then, when the glory of God came to earth in the person of Jesus, we rejected him. Scripture says that he came into his own and his own did not receive him. It says that he was despised and rejected by men. But even in the rejection of Christ, a relationship with God is offered. In his death on the cross, the door to restoration and relationship is now swung open wide. So now we're told that any who would repent and believe in Jesus will be saved, will be brought back into relationship with God. And literally what scripture says is that we as followers of Jesus are individually and collectively the temple of God. Because now in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And if we were to read all the way to the end of the story, get all the way to the book of Revelation, we would find that one day on that final day, the dwelling place of God will be with man forever. 
And I think that all of that is an important piece of context when we think about what's happening as we turn our attention to the end of the book of Ezekiel which we're gonna look at today, we're gonna to look at it next week, and then we're gonna move on to another book. So if you're tired of Ezekiel, you got two more sermons. Um, okay, the book of Ezekiel begins with the glory of God coming to Babylon, right? Having abandoned the temple in Jerusalem and in pursuit of his people who've been carried off. But now here we are at the end of the book and Ezekiel's gonna see in his final vision that the glory of God is returning to Jerusalem. The temple's being rebuilt and the presence of God is being reestablished with his people. So here's what we're told in Ezekiel chapter 40. It says, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me to the city, that's to Jerusalem, and in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and he set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. That structure is is the temple of God. He's going to see in his visions the temple of God being restored. Here's what's happening. It's 13 years since the last set of visions that Ezekiel has told us about, but God is speaking again. And in the vision he's giving to Ezekiel, a new temple has been built in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. It's not the temple that they're gonna build when they get back from exile. Okay, so they are eventually gonna get out of exile. They're gonna go back. They're gonna rebuild the temple. You can read about it, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's not this temple. And it's not the temple that Herod builds when Herod later on builds a temple because Herod really just wanted a temple that was all about him. So he tried to make it look a particular way. Not that temple either. So really, we don't actually even know exactly what this temple is. It's kind of like a blueprint, but also not, Exactly. We just know that God here is saying that I am coming back to dwell with my people again. So I can't tell you the specifics. I don't know them. That's okay. I think we want to focus on what we do know. And here's um, perhaps the best way to put it. Victor Hamilton, the commentator says this, for a second time, Ezekiel is transported in a vision to Jerusalem. The first excursion for the prophet was to witness Jerusalem's abomination and destruction. And this trip is for the purpose of viewing Jerusalem and the temple's restoration. That's what's happening. God is showing Ezekiel a vision of hope and restoration. But more than that, He's showing to Ezekiel a vision of relationship, a vision of his glory and of the demands and the promises that his glory brings to his people. And so we want to think about those things. What are the demands and what are the promises of the glory of God? And so to, to think about that, what we're not going to do is read the very detailed blueprints in chapters 40 to 42. You can read those on your own time. You can sketch it out, see what it looks like. We're not going to do that today. Instead, what I want us to focus on is this incredible thing that happens in chapter 43. And so the vision of the temple is complete. And now we're going to look at Ezekiel 43, 1 to 12. And as always, we encourage you, follow along in your own copy of God's Word. It'll be up here on the screen as well. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 814. And as always, these Bibles are here for you. So if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please take one of those with you. We'd love to give it to you. 
Okay, let me read Ezekiel 43, 1 to 12. It says this. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their thresholds by my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now, let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design, all its laws, and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. This is the law of the temple. The temple has been completed. And now, and now what, what happens? God's glory comes rushing in. And so the first time this has happened, in fact, this is the pattern that we see every time God establishes a dwelling place with his people, this is what happens. So when the people of Israel finally finish constructing the tabernacle in the wilderness, here's what we're told in Exodus chapter 40. We're told, then the cloud covering the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So much glory filling up the tabernacle that even Moses couldn't get in. And then we're told when they built the temple in Jerusalem in the days of Solomon, they finish this temple. And we're told this, that when the priest came out of the, high, the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory will not be left out in the cold. God is going to fill his temple up with his glory so much so that you can't even get inside of it. Nothing else can enter when God's glory has filled his temple. Now just think about that for a moment, given the truth of scripture that you 
that any individual trusting in Jesus, you are the temple of God. Let me just show you this in scripture. First Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter 6, 19, it says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You individually are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God. God's spirit lives within you. God's spirit has filled you up with the glory of God. And it's illustrated over and over and over again in scripture, specifically in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts where you have these stories about people finally giving their life over to the Lord. They finally trust in Jesus. And as soon as it happens, the Holy Spirit falls on them with power and glory. And that's still the case today. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are filled with the power and the glory of God through the Holy Spirit. And that matters because the glory of God brings with it demands on our life and promises to our life. And so the first thing we see in our passage is that the glory of God demands worship. Look back at verse one. He leads me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I saw at the Chabar Canal. And here's what Ezekiel does. I fall on my face. Ezekiel sees the glory of God and he falls on his face in worship because the glory of God demands worship. And all through scripture, that is true. Perhaps most notably, Exodus 33, Moses asked God if he can see his glory. Presumptuous of him. Moses says, can I see your glory? Show me your glory. God says, listen, you can't see my glory. You can't see my face and, and still live. You're gonna die if I show you my glory. And so God devises a plan for Moses. Here's what he says. The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God hides him, passes by. And then Moses sees his back, right? He sees the residue of God's glory. And then Moses comes down from the mountain, having had this encounter with God, with the glory of the Lord. And his face is shining with so much brightness that the people of Israel, including Aaron, were afraid to even come and talk to him. And so they have to convince him to stick a veil over his face to hide the glory of God because God's glory is so great. Even if you just see the residue of what was left when God's glory passes by, it is too great that I could even look at you. That's why when you look at what happens in the New Testament, when Cornelius sees the glory of God in Peter, he tries to worship him. And when the people of Lystra see the glory of God in Paul and Barnabas, they try to worship them. And when John, John who knew Jesus, 
sees the glory of God in the angel in the book of Revelation, he tries to worship him. Because even when God's glory is distilled down to us through people and through angels, it is so great that you can't think of anything else to do but worship. Okay, but what about us? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are filled up with God's glory because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And my question is, does that cause you to fall on your face in worship? Are you overwhelmed with the glory of God to such a degree that you just can't speak? And perhaps the the real question is simply, how often do you dwell on the fact that God's glory is dwelling inside of you? Because I'm convinced that if we would just sit in that reality, then we we would do nothing else but worship. If we would just sit in that reality, because the glory of God demands worship. But the glory of God promises a relationship with a God who will speak to us. Now that's an astounding reality, isn't it? With all of his glory, that God would still concern himself with relating to us. But that's exactly what he, what he does. In our passage here, we see it in verse 4. So the glory of God has come in. He's fallen on his face. And then we're told, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man is standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. So this is now the voice of God, not the voice of his guide. The voice of God is speaking to him out of the temple. God's glory is all around, and yet God wants to have a conversation with Ezekiel. God wants a relationship with him. So God speaks to him from out of the temple. Right? And this is what we see in, in Jesus as, as well with all of God's glory, which would make it right for him to just completely disregard us entirely. And yet, in Christ, the glory of God is shown and he speaks to us. Here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the means by which God is communicating with us every day. He speaks to us through his glorious son. The same God that is upholding the universe by the word of his power is also using his words to speak to you. The God who created everything, who created this world, is speaking to you about how to navigate this world. The glory of God demands worship, but it promises a relationship with a God who wants to speak with you. Secondly, the glory of God demands repentance. You see that in our passage as well, 
right? God is revealing his glory actually for this purpose, to drive his people to repentance knowing that if they would truly encounter, if we would truly encounter and experience his glory, we would repent. So here's what he says in verse nine. Now, let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me. That's all their idolatry. He said, put all your idolatry away and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Here's why I want you to tell them about the glory of the temple for this reason, that they might be ashamed of their sin. This is the most fundamental reason I'm giving you this vision. I'm asking you to share the description of the glorious temple is so the people will repent, so that they'll become ashamed of their sin and put it away. They will turn from their sin. When when we truly see the glory of God, the first response might be to worship him. That's a right response. But the second response is to recognize our own sinfulness. How could we not? When I see him and I compare me, well, this is what happens to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter six, he has a vision of the glory of God. He sees him high and lifted up on his glorious throne. And this is the first thing he says, woe is me, I am lost. I am am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His sin is brought into stark contrast with the glory of, of God. And his response rightly is to repent of his sin. And it's the goodness of the glory of God, Romans 2 tells us, that drives us to repentance. If God truly is this glorious and I truly am this sinful, something's gonna happen if we're ever gonna have a relationship with one another. If he's really who he is and I believe that he is and I'm really who I am and I know that I am, then we've got a problem if we're gonna have a relationship with one another. And here's the thing, God is not going to lower his glory. So I have to turn from my sin. And I think maybe that's why the reformer, Martin Luther, maybe that's what he's talking about when he says that the entire life of a believer is to be one of repentance. Because if I am filled up with the glory of God, then I am constantly being made aware of my sin and constantly being driven to repentance because the glory of God demands repentance. But The glory of God promises a relationship with a God who is gracious. The good news of God's glory is not simply that he shows me my sin, but that he forgives them. The promise to all who repent is that we will receive a grace that is deeper and greater than all our sin. And we see it right here in our passage. Look at verse nine again. He says, let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me. So he says, okay, let them turn from their idolatrous sin. And then here's the promise. I will dwell in their midst forever. Repent of your sin and God will dwell with you forever. That's grace. It's what happens in Isaiah 6 as well. 
Isaiah cries out, woe is me. And then God meets him with grace and forgiveness and even sends him out on mission to be his prophet to the nation Israel. It's actually what we're told in, in John chapter one, two, that the glory of God seen in Christ is full of grace. So look at this, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And jump down to verse 16. It says, and for from his fullness, that's the fullness of his glory, we have received grace upon grace. Because the law came, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The glory of God promises a relationship with a God who is full of grace for you. And so while it demands repentance, it demands recognition, it demands a a turning from my sin, it also promises that my sin will not be met with wrath, but with grace, with God's kindness, with forgiveness. We'll be met with the grace of a God that enables a relationship with him. And the third thing that we see is that the glory of God demands holiness. Look at verse 43. I'm chapter 43 in the middle of verse 11. It says this, make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple the whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. The law of the temple is holiness. The law of relationship with God is holiness. The law of the indwelling Holy Spirit is holiness. And and it's in the New Testament too, because when, when Paul's talking about how we are the temple of God in that 1 Corinthians 6, he does it in the context of talking about our personal holiness. And then in chapter 3, actually that same book, he talks about it elsewhere there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's glory demands holiness from us. It demands a life of righteousness. But the truth of the matter, right, is that while it's the demand of the glory of God, it's not something any of us can do. None of us can accomplish that. Try if you'd like. It's why it's so important that the same glory of God that demands holiness promises a relationship with a God who will make us holy. That's his work in us. God's not left us to figure it all out on our own. He indwells us. He fills us up with his spirit. That's the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us how to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It's, it's the spirit of God within us that produces fruit in our lives. That's what we're told. And Galatians 5.22 tells us this, that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can do those all day long. There are no laws against the fruit of the spirit in your life. God knows our weaknesses. 
He knows that, that the holiness that he demands is beyond our reach, which is why he graciously gives us the spirit to work in us, to bring about lives of, of holiness. But you know, it's worth considering this. How sensitive are we to the Spirit's movement in our life? Now, here's, here's the amazing thing about trusting in Christ. We're told that at the, at the moment that we place our trust and our life into the hands of God, the moment we repent and believe in Jesus, that our sins are forgiven. But more than that, the righteousness of Christ is placed on our account. We now stand before God righteous, holy. We can be his temple because he has declared us holy. But here's my question. Not what has God declared you, but what are you? How are you living? Because the reality is this, that while God's declaration of your holiness will get you into heaven, God's declaration of holiness over you is, is what we need when we think about, well, how am I going to spend eternity with God? How does God's spirit live within me if I'm not holy? It's because God has declared me holy. But here's God's work in my life today. He is making that declaration a reality by pointing, by convicting us of sin, by freeing us from sin. So the thing that we might need to consider, follower of Jesus, is how sensitive are you to the Spirit's movement in your life? And, and one of the ways that, that we might do that is actually simply by reflecting more on the glory of God. Because if we're meditating on God's glory, we're going to be drawn to worship, yes, but also to repentance and holiness. We're going to be drawn deeper into a relationship with a God who desires to reveal even more of himself to us, to show us grace, to make us holy. And, and so my, my encouragement to you, I'm not going to give you a big list of things that you need to figure out and fix in your life. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to say this. This week, meditate on the glory of God. And, and here's some simple ways to do that. When you read scripture this week, step one, read scripture this week. And as you do, just make a note of what scripture is telling you about God. Who is God? There's a lot of things that you can get out of scripture. You can read it for a whole bunch of purposes. Here's what I want you to do. Spend some of your time just simply asking this question. What is this that I'm reading telling me about who God is? And then take that, that little nugget that you pulled out and just reflect on it for the rest of the day. All day long, just think about who God is. Think about his glory. And then, and then here's another thing. As you walk around, as you experience life in this beautiful world, reflect on creation, reflect on one another, reflect on the food that you eat. And in all of those things, think about this. Every good gift that you get comes from the glory of God. It's all God. And so when you receive that good gift, reflect on the glory of God that is displayed in this gift. And as you meditate on his glory and see what it reveals about him, and I'm going to say about yourself as well, you're going to be tempted to run away because the glory of God can be a little scary. And our temptation is to just not think about it all that much. 
So don't run away from his glory because know this, that his greatest glory is seen in his desire to have a relationship with you. That's his greatest glory. And so step into that relationship. His greatest glory is his willingness to forgive his people so much so that he would run after them all the way to Babylon. So much so that he's running after you as well. So much so that he would step down from heaven and become man and live among us because he wants a relationship with you in order to show us his glory, to save us from our sin and to bring us into relationship with himself. Let's pray. God, your glory is overwhelming. You are the the God who created all that is and upholds the world with the word of your power. And yet you want a relationship with us. So God, we thank you for your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And we thank you that you are indwelling your people with your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that this week you would make us more and more sensitive to your move in our lives, that we would follow you more closely. Lord, that you would reveal to us more and more of your glory that we might know you more rightly. And Lord, we long for that day, that final day, when as you promise in your word, you will dwell with us forever and fully and perfectly. But until that day, we pray, Lord, that as you dwell inside of us, that we would take care to listen to your voice and to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.